Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. So thank you this afternoon, Kathy Parks, for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles. And uh, before we start, I'll just get you to tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners and of course your group, Canadians for Long-Term Care Standards and why it was created. Sure. Uh, so Kathy Parks, I, I actually... Um, didn't really have a long history with long-term care. My grandparents were in it, but um, last year, actually the year before, 2019, my father entered Orchard Villa Long-Term Care Home. Um, so that was really my extended period of um, relationship with long-term care. And he was there for about five months. Um, Orchard Villa was one of the homes that had the military presence in, the, in Ontario. And uh, he contracted COVID and, uh, well, I should say leading up to, it was a, a week of absolute chaos trying to talk to him, see him, find out how he was doing. Um, and then he passed away April 15th, uh, 2020. And, you know, there was a lot of upset surrounding all of that. Um, I realized that he probably hadn't eaten or had anything to drink in a good number of days. Um, the information that I was getting from the home was very different from what I was hearing from the frontline staff. So it's sort of walking around in the dark, no communication. I was really close with my dad. So I have two older brothers. We were all, we were a really close knit family. I talked to him every day. I was there, you know, when he was in the Orchard Villa between three to five times a week. Um, so it was a really, really difficult time. And I'm a, not naturally a spokesperson. <laughs> I don't normally sort of stand up in front of a camera. It's not my forte. But I realized um, after seeing him, we were fortunate enough to have a, a viewing just for family because of restrictions. And uh, that what had happened to my dad had, was so evident in his physical appearance. And, and then on the day of his burial, which was April 22nd, I was in contact with all these families from Orchard Villa and realizing that they were going through what I had just experienced and what the outcome of that was going to be. And if somebody didn't speak up, uh, we were gonna see, I mean, it ended up, there were 78 deaths in that home, um, but it could have been so much worse. So I decided, I work in media, I contacted people that I work with and went on national news uh, the day my father was buried. And that sort of, I thought that was going to be a one-off. Okay, I've said what I have to say and now I'll go back over here. <laughs> um, and what it actually did was it, it really snowballed into something that I've become very passionate about. Um, and I feel like there's a place where my voice needs to be heard as far as family advocates. Um, and I just have become strangely through all of this, fortunate enough to meet people with the sort of the same heart and passion that I have. So we've joined together and formed um, Canadians for Long-Term Care, or Canadians for Long-Term Care Standards. So, and it all really came through, surprisingly enough, my lawyer. Um, we did hire a lawyer to um, file suit against the home. There's about 30 families of Orchard Villa who have done the same. And she is a long-term care lawyer, legal specialist, and also in her very rare spare time, an advocate. So she connected a bunch of us together. We found we were all had a common goal, um, originally really tried to push hard on a provincial level to get things done and quickly realized that that door is just closed to advocates and the average citizen and you know people who have loved ones, they just are not listening. There's no communication. So out of frustration, we started to think, what else can we do? And that led to 
we need to look at things on a federal level because something can be done there. And we created, we created the group we're now in. Thank you so much for that. That is just, you know, retelling your story. I'm sure that that was not easy, as well as to the journey for you to get to Canadians for Long-Term Care Standards as well. So going on to the, the next question here, I know that your group has, you know, it's been part of a number of initiatives and you had the national campaign of Broken Harps Empty, empty Shoes in November 2020 uh, that was on Parliament Hill. What were the outcomes of that particular event and will there be something similar to that as well? Yeah, so that that was really born out of we need to raise awareness and we need to take it to Ottawa. I mean, the people who attended that, I think uh, there were a few volunteers from Ottawa, but we were all from different parts of Ontario and Quebec. So there was a lot of organization involved. But and because of the reason why we did the, the broken hearts and empty shoes is um, because of the gathering limits. So we wanted something that was visual and uh, came up with this idea of one pair of shoes for every four residents lost in long-term care across Canada at that time. I think now we would probably completely fill the lawn with shoes. That's how bad it's gotten. You know, we're looking at 11,000 long-term care deaths right now. So, um, and, and, and through sort of work and contacts, we were able to uh, reach out to NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who was a speaker there and MPs liberal MPs who are working on national standard policy right now. Um, but it was important for us to say, you know, we need to start paying more attention. And, and that was sort of our, our kickoff. And at the time we were thinking this might be a one-time thing, um, but we knew we had more to do. And so we have actually, uh, this is the timing of this is great because we've, we've just decided that we're doing uh, our next phase. So it's a campaign called 10 plus three Canadians United for Long-Term Care Standards. Um, this time, we will be hosting a national protest in every province the same day, which will be April 27th, at the same time. Um, we are working for, uh, you know, we're, we're just reaching out to different people, the health coalitions in each province to see if, you know, they would like to come on board. And, uh, and we decided this time, because of the oddity of sort of you know the lockdowns and where you can and can't go that we would actually um preview this with a town hall series so we are having an eight-part town hall series starting on march the 2nd going every tuesday until april the 20th um we do have some confirmed speakers we have uh, ndp leader jagmeet singh will be one of our speakers we will be speaking with nursing associations and unions uh psws um doctors and our very last one, which is our secret mystery one, will will be quite quite impressive, I think, right before the demonstration. And then, and then we'll be having the, the nationwide demonstration. Just to say, you know, we've talked a lot about national standards. And even in the beginning, when we did broken hearts and empty shoes, there was a lot we didn't know and a lot that we now do know. We've had conversations with the Prime Minister's office, um, Jagmeet Singh, Minister of, Minister of uh, Senior the her office, that's Deb Schultz, um, Patty Hedju's office, and we're just about to speak with Aaron O'Toole's office. So sort of getting a feel for what the thought process is, jurisdiction, which is a big issue, what can and can't be done, what the ask is. And now we have a lot more information and a lot more focus on what we're asking for. And we've talked a lot and now it's time to see some action. No, that's great because I mean now that your your group is focusing on long term on the 
on, you know, for long-term care to be part of the national level conversation, what is your group looking for in terms of those um, national standards? What's to be part of that? Well, I think the two ultimate, so there's, there's different steps to this. Um, the ultimate end goal would be removing profit for long-term care. It would be having long-term care incorporated into the Canada Health Act. That would be the long-term goal. In the meantime, we also need national standards. And so in, in looking at what we had to, what we were asking for, we have to realize that long-term care homes are under provincial jurisdiction. That's the way it says in the Constitution Act, and that's the way it is. But that doesn't mean that the federal government does not have um, a place there because they govern health. So um, this is why there are things that, you know, it can be tied to funding, uh, national standards. And so we really had to pare it down because our list originally was really long. <laughs> There's a lot that we want fixed. And through our conversations with the prime minister's office and, and you know, different people, we realized that they're really looking for a smaller list, very pointed and very um, detailed. So our, our standards are asking for number one, um, we need better paid wages for staff. That's number one. They need to have proper training. We'd like to see a standardized training across the country, especially for uh, infection prevention and control. And we want to know that they have benefits, that they don't feel like they have to go from home to home or that they have to live in shelters, as we've heard in Ottawa. Um, so this needs to be not a job that's kind of left over and people pick up, but something people really aspire to. And so that was number one. Uh, we're also looking for, um, in Ontario, we call them RQIs. So it's really inspections. Um, we want at least two inspections per home per year. And we've really fallen behind on that uh, in Ontario specifically, which has the highest number of long-term care homes, the highest number of for-profit long-term care homes. And, um, you know, I think we were down to nine inspections in 2019. And if no one's looking, then there's no one regulating. So that was a big one. Um, we're asking for at least four hours of personal care per resident. Now, the ideal would actually be five, six, um, but, you know, in baby steps. <laughs> so we're asking for four. Um, and again, I'll speak to Ontario. They're saying, yes, we'll give you four in three years from now, and we're going to do it in 15-minute increments. The thousands of lives that will be lost between now and then without the proper care, it's just, it's not okay for, for that to be said. So we're looking for the federal level to sort of come out and say, um, you know, this is going to be a standard. And, and the final is accountability. Now, as a family member who lost someone, this is a big one for me. Um, I wanna know when you look at these inspection reports and something serious has happened more than just a fall, but you know, proper improper medication was given or someone ended up in the hospital and you see that they say, well, we've asked for a voluntary plan of care. So the home gets to write, well, we'll do better next time. And that's it. So not even really a slap on the wrist. It's just, we wrote it down and that's it. That's not acceptable to families. Um, it's certainly not acceptable to residents. There's this fear of saying anything at all because the resident may feel the repercussion. And we, don't, we wanna remove all of that stigma. We want it gone. We want accountability. So we're asking for the federal government to basically say, money will be tied to this. You must find them. And if we're talking about repeat infractions, where they're not, uh, you know, they're not fixing their level of care, removing their license. 
So, and we've also asked for the federal government to really start to flow their funds to direct it into not-for-profits. And, you know, if you have a repeat offender, a bad actor, as it's called here in Ontario, um, their license doesn't get renewed. And let's find a way to, to shift that home to maybe municipal, the municipal government will take it over and they've done so much better uh, across the board. So those kinds of things, those are, those are our four big asks. Um, outside of the actual national standards, we would love to see a, a governing federal board that receives all our QIs, that looks them over, and that if the provincial level is not meeting their own policies regarding RQIs, the federal government will then step in, tie it to funding, and basically say, this home will no longer be able to receive our funding. And because they have to tie it all to funding, that's really where their power is federally. Um, so yes, the accountability, it's a big one for me. I think, I think the two most important to me, although it's hard to say, would be the staffing and the accountability. So those were our, our four asks. Those are great for asks, to be quite honest, because I mean, especially the training piece um, for the PSWs is a big one because they're not um, regulated healthcare professionals uh, throughout the province and they're different all across the country as to how they're designated, what their job duties are and what their roles and responsibilities are. And I know in some retirement, I know we're talking about long-term care, but I know in some retirement homes, they don't even have to use PSWs. They could just train anybody off the street, so to speak, and have them dispense medication, which is a bit kind of oh gosh. scary. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, so, but I, I know that, you know, during the second wave, you know, during the pandemic, there's been more deaths, especially here in Ontario. And your group has been calling on the Minister of Long-Term Care to have the military come in and assist these facilities. However, no action has been taken. And... I guess further to this is to have how important it is for families and persons of importance to be at the table of discussion for how long-term care should be part of this, they should be part of this change. Yeah, that's, that is an important one. And that's something that we've been saying all along. You know, there's a, there's a place for a geriatric specialists in the medical profession. There's a place for advocates who have been doing this for 40 years. There's also a place for family because I don't think people realize that the families are the ones who are in there every single day feeding. I mean, I cut my dad's hair, I shaved him, I fed him, I put on his socks, like there's, I helped make his bed, I, you know, help push him to meals. And that was just, there was people who were so much more involved. You know, people who are there every single day with their wives or their husbands. We have a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge to bring. And I think that they need to be included. I have been saying that uh, on the federal level and every discussion that I have, I ended with, and can we have a third party uh, committee that will include family advocates? You can choose them, but there needs to be that voice there. So that's really important, I think. Um, and I don't, I don't remember what the first part of your question was, or was that it? No, that was pretty much it because it was basically calling on to the long-term, you know, the minister of long-term care and they're not moving forward with having military come in for these homes that are in crisis. Let me just say the military part of it um, is really frustrating. And my opinion is, and I think it's a common one, uh, military reports. It is the only reason why they won't send the military back in. And what I've been saying recently is having been associated with Orchard Villa, I can tell you that they had an outbreak January the 9th. It was staff only. It was on the retirement side. Orchard Villa has a retirement and a long-term care side. 
So it was on the retirement side. It did get into the long-term care side, but not through transmission. Um, that was actually from residents going to the hospital for, for procedures and coming back with COVID. But what they've managed to do is they've done it properly now. They've done it right now. They unfortunately had to have media scrutiny, military presence to learn how to do it right. But now you're seeing that home does not have an outbreak. So we have to know that these highly trained military uh, medics who can go in and support and bolster and train and teach and help, it's so essential. And there's no reason not to have them. There's nothing against the Canadian Red Cross. They're fabulous. But of course, they won't write a report. And I think that's where the difference is, is uh, trying to control the information that's coming out of these homes. And when we put that above lives, it's a continuation of travesty that's going on here. So really, really disappointed in that choice. And it's quite obvious why they're doing it, even though they won't say why they're doing it. Yeah, and it's just very heartbreaking and very frustrating for people to, to look to see that nothing is being done. It's just um, unbelievable. And your group has, you know, has been very vocal about the need to have profits removed from long-term care. Um, and you mentioned, uh, alluded to previously in terms of the, your group's plan and your vision for this and how this should be done and how this should be part of national standards. Can you just go into that in a little bit more detail? So the, the, the idea is basically you make it so that uh, the profit is no longer profitable. So when you have these heavy fines because you're not living up to what you should be living up to, when you're not receiving funding because you're a repeat offender and all of a sudden the, these hundreds of millions of dollars are not flowing and you're finding, oh, you know, getting the insurance is more difficult and, and having to deal with all of these things is actually costing more money. It doesn't become something that's as lucrative as it was. And I especially think when we're talking about repeat offenders, somebody who has, uh, you know, constant infractions against them, their license needs to be removed. And so when people hear like, oh, we, we should remove for profits, that can't be done. It's going to cost so much money and it just can't happen. Yes, it can. It just can't happen all at once. And it has to happen slowly. And it, it was done, you know, extended care used to be in the United States and they were fined, taken to court and fined so heavily that they chose to leave. They shut down their business in the U.S. And now, of course, they're heavily everywhere else, but it can happen. It's just living up to the policies that exist finding people, removing license, making it not so profitable, um, and certainly pouring more funds into the not-for-profits. This idea that we have right now of these new warehouse homes that are being built in Ontario and being sold to Chartwell and other for-profits, it's not acceptable. That has to stop and reverse, and I know it's supposed to be done by this year, but that's just going to compound the problem. We're just making it worse. And I think until we accept that you know, profits need to be removed from long-term care, uh, that's going to continue being a problem. But there is a way to do it. It's just not an instant fix. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I definitely agree. There are some provinces in this country that are, that only have a non-for-profit model. So it can definitely be done on a, throughout the entire country. And who else has your group kind of worked with in terms of getting the message out for national standards for long-term care on a national level? So, um, so as far as worked with advocacy wise, uh, the Ontario Health Coalition was a big supporter of our, our event in November. Um, but we, we had surprising, even around that event, Value Village in Ottawa stepped up and said, we'll give you the shoes. And for eight weeks, we went and collected shoes 
and brought them to the Legion who let us warehouse. Like there's just been so many people realizing the problem and stepping up. Um, as far as though on, on the advocacy level, one of our members is um, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos. She's, she's done a lot of interviews. She's very knowledgeable. Um, she's with doctors for long-term care justice. So, and, and then I've also worked with people from Voices for Long-Term Care and, and Warriors for Seniors. There's a lot, there's so many groups out there right now. And you find that as you talk, you, you, um, you start to meet all these people who have the same passion that you do. So, and we all support each other. So that's been great. Um, but as far as, as who we've connected with, a lot of our connections came through Melissa Miller. Um, and, and then we actually uh, just kind of happened into, you know, connecting with Andrea Horvath and EP for Ontario, and then up onto the federal level, just by asking questions and pushing and pushing and who's doing this and who's doing that, who can I talk to? And it became these doors that opened where we were able to have discussion, really important discussions. So it's, it's, it's moving somewhere. Uh, discussions are great as long as they're followed by action. So that's what we're hoping for. No, that's great. And it's wonderful that you're working with all of these groups and your voices are all, you know, kind of coming together and bringing forth different aspects that need to be talked about and discussed since this has not been talked about for many, many, many years, other than, um, you know, just what it is right now. I know that you had, um, as part of with Orchard Villa, you had spoken to the Ontario Long-Term Care Commission. Could you just tell us some of the issues that you brought up to them that was very important that they need to make sure that this is looked at for changes to happen in long-term care in Ontario? Yeah, um, I should say that that's, so I, I'll have to back up a little bit and yeah. say that when all this stuff was happening with Orchard Villa, we had, um, you're, there's no communication and you're in the dark and you need information. And the one place that brought information was other families. And I just happened upon um, a messenger chat for Orchard Villa families, but all the information was getting lost, right? As you start messaging more. So I opened a Facebook group and that ended up being what an incredible place to connect with other families and to find out that, oh my goodness, what's happening to my dad is the exact same story all the way across the board, malnutrition, dehydration, left alone. And, and we started slowly putting the, the pieces of the puzzle together and that gave us a bigger picture and really leaned on each other. And then we were grieving together and sharing. And it was nice to put a picture of my father up and have people come and say, oh, I, I knew your dad. I went in and saw him on these days and it was fantastic. So um, that, that sort of bonded us together. And we started talking about then, you know, once things got towards the summer, we started talking about what are the next steps? Well, we'd like to see a public inquiry independent public inquiry, we started to ask for it, we were denied. And we got to a point where we realized, okay, we're not going to get what we want. So we have to work with what we have, which is this long-term care commission. And we felt it was really important that the families um, have a say, that they go on record. And we didn't want to approach it as a, let's go and tell our stories because we've been telling our stories, right? And not that they're not important, but this was more, um, what do we want? What do we need to see as people who have been in long-term care homes, our family members are either still in there or have passed away, what change would we like this commission to recommend? So we sat down as a group, it was a, a long process, and came up with a list of things that, we've, that we experienced firsthand and that we wanted to see change on. Um, and there were about 23 of us out of, I think we have a group of about 250. Some people don't, are not comfortable speaking publicly, which is totally fine. Yes. Um, 
but we, um, yeah, so we ended up meeting with the, it was actually a, quite a few meetings leading up to the commission. Um, and I have to say that, that, that the judge and the two commissioners, um, very respectful and really wanting to hear what had happened. So for us, uh, it was things like, you know, if you're going to lock us out, which we really do not agree with, there should, and now they, of course, they have the essential caregivers in Ontario that can go in. Um, we would like to see a camera in every single room. If I ha could have turned on a camera and seen the state of my father, things would have been very, very different. So things like that, things like um, I was not allowed to be with my dad when he died. I wasn't allowed to send him to the hospital. I was denied both of those things. So, and I was his power, not only his daughter, but his power of attorney. And so we were saying that when it comes to something critical like that, that can't happen at all. It just cannot happen. So, and, and my father, for example, got to the point where his fever was high. I was being told something different. His fever was high and he couldn't breathe. They should have sent him to the hospital. Any other person across the entire world in that state would have been sent to the hospital, but they left him. And if you can't drink water and then you can't take Tylenol and then you can't bring your fever down, there's really only one outcome for that. Um, that just cannot be allowed. So we ask for things like that. Things like, you know, POAs always, or, or essential caregivers always have to be notified. Um, we want cameras in every room. UTIs, bed sores and falls were not being dealt with during the pandemic. Um, my dad had a UTI and I was never even informed, you know? Um, so there was a lot of things. If, if you're finding that you're in a situation where there's no food, for example, the kitchen staff walked out and so now they're not getting food and, and the, the cleaning staff is feeding the residents, you have to have a better backup plan. You need to have infection prevention and control. You need to have space for cohorting. So all the same things that we originally started asking the provincial government for, we wanted that documented in the commission. Um, the unfortunate thing about the commission is all they can do is recommend. They can't enforce. But we'll see what happens when it comes out in April. Uh, I think we'll all be watching to see what comes of that. But yes. We're so passionate about, that, about getting that on record. Definitely, because I, I, I mean, when I was reading the, the testimony, it was just quite, um, it's very disturbing and horrifying just to know that in terms of what you mentioned, in terms of dietary, you know, the, the whole fact of 75% of, let's say, half a half-eaten sandwich is considered to be what is good nutrition. Now, what is, is that really good nutrition type of thing? So, you know, I'm sure that, uh, you know, through your testimony, what you're seeing, and you've mentioned it many times here, that obviously that's the reason why... You, the, on the provincial level, there's just nowhere to go. It has to be at a national level, on the federal level, to get these changes enacted and moved forward. Now, what would you say in terms of for some of our listeners that do want to be involved with your group? How can they? How can they do that? Where Where do people need to need to go? Um, so I would say reach out to your health coalition in your province. Um, they will have hopefully full knowledge. Like I said, we're just in the process right now of, of confirming all of that. So I don't want to speak too soon. But um, even if they're not connected with all of this, which I don't think will happen, but, um, you know, they'll still know how to how to how to connect with all of it. Um, so we're, we're looking for what we're basically asking for is watch the town hall series right to your MPP, right to your MP be loud about it. And then on April 27th, depending on where you are, depending on the gathering rules, we want to see people come out and show their support. And if you can't, because we can't, like if we're at 20, no more than 25 people, we will do a visual protest. It should be an 
every single, in front of every single legislative assembly across the country, the same day, same time. And we're asking our premiers to start working with the federal government for long-term care standards. And so you can be involved in that through social media. Um, we're we're going to start a campaign called hashtag your flag for that day. So you hashtag the flag of your province, and then you use the hashtag 10PLUS3, the number three. So 10PLUS number three, and in support of national standards. So all of that information will come out. We're actually about to release it, well, as we're recording this week, but <laughs> by the time this happens, it'll have been done. Um, so yeah, I think the most important part for the average person, because I get asked this a lot, what can I do? Write to your MP and write to your MPP and don't stop. It's not a one-off. It doesn't take much to sit down and write an email um, and you can let them know, listen, this is important to me. I want to see change in long-term care. I want to see national standards for long-term care. And I would like to see it incorporated into the Canada Health Act, long-term care. So do those things. And I'd say about once a month, hit send again and just keep doing it. And you know, you can reach out on social media to advocacy groups like ours, or there's tons of them everywhere. And even ask them like, what can I do? How can I support? And I'm not talking monetary because I mean, we don't deal with monetary support, um, but just in, as far as how, how can I support and get the word out? So there are, there are things that can be done. There are petitions, but they have to be, um, you know, ink on paper petitions, but that can happen as well. Uh, moving forward, I'm hoping we don't Ever have to get to that point. I'm hoping national standards will come before that, but it's an option. So yeah, there, there's lots to do. Reach out. You can even reach out to us, um, Canadians for long-term care. So it's the number four Canadians, number four LTC. And we have a, an email account. We're on Facebook, Twitter, um, you know, Instagram, and somebody will always answer always. Oh no, that's perfect. Cause I think that's what people want to know is where do they go? What do they do? And how do they reach out to become involved and all of that? And I know that you had mentioned as well. Um, I know that the prime minister recently, um, I think it was last week had, a, um, you know, kind of like not necessarily a town hall because I think it was a physician that had initiated that, but you know, those are the types of conversations, I guess, that needs to, to happen more so on a more regular basis and much more of a commitment, would you say? Um, you know, so people are aware that long-term care standards really need to be, they need to be a reality. Mm -hmm. You know that, so it was a round table, yes, yeah. you know, put together by a doctor and Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos was in that one, um, yes. our group. I was, first of all, really informative. You know, I, I never stopped to think that vaccine rollouts and none of it would have a language barrier. I, I sat and listened to that and I thought, oh, well, well, that makes total sense and that has to be fixed. I mean, we've got to fix that. But things like that. And then at the end, when we did start talking about national standards, I was really impressed with the passion that the prime minister spoke with and what he had to say. Um, hearing him say, I got to tell you, I got emotional. I did. When he said, I am committed to national standards that gave me a little spark of hope, you know, and, and I've heard um, even Jagmeet Singh, his plan is amazing, his platform and what he wants to do is right on the money with what we're asking for. Uh, but yeah, to hear the prime minister say that was hopeful and you have that moment of maybe it's gonna happen and then we do have to sort of pepper it a little bit with, but now we need some action, right? So the words are wonderful and appreciated and let's now let's see it happen. Uh, you know, I know that right after he spoke, um, ministry, the Minister of Health, Patty Haju, she spoke and said that there were some hiccups with it. 
And we sort of heard that. We don't want it to be another recommendation. Um, you know, it would be a hard thing to enforce. I'm hoping that's not a step back. It's not what we need. We need a step forward. And, and I think the federal government needs to realize this is what Canadians want. 86% of Canadians would like to see long-term care incorporated into the Canadian Health Act. So that should say something, right? You're, elect, you're our elected officials. This is what we want. It's going to be a campaign issue. So let's move forward. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. So, Kathy, I just want to really thank you so much for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles today. And this will be launched, I guess, uh, this episode will be released the same week of when your uh, campaign will be starting. So I really do hope that this, you know, really gets out there and uh, gets people talking and into action uh, for your group and for what it stands for as to what uh, needs to be done. So thank you again. Yes, thank you so much. And your and your podcast is great. Thanks for doing it. I'm listening to it and it's important. Yeah as well so yeah thanks so much oh you're welcome thank you